to the forefront of the fashion industry. First of all, welcome back if you're tuning in again with me this week. So good to see you all come through again. And if you're new here to the AA family, then a big warm welcome. If you haven't already done so, please do hit the follow button on whichever streaming app that you're listening to right now. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, then I would really really appreciate it if you left a five-star review on the show and please do leave also your instagram handle because i would love to connect and thank you all personally for helping me spread the word and drive these sustainability discussions to more listeners and more ears so this week's chat i feel is a slightly overlooked issue maybe because it's intangible but just like covid19 where it's been causing a little bit of paranoia, people are being more cautious of their surroundings. Um, It's kind of spoken as like an invisible enemy that's super hard to control. But this week's focus is actually something that we could all definitely be vocal about to gain back that control. And that is the topic of quality of air and our atmosphere. So why is this this week's focus? Why is it air pollution? Well, not too long ago, I came across Ella Kissy Deborah's story. And if you haven't come across Ella's story before, Ella was the first person in the UK to have air pollution as a cause of death. Ella was exposed to excessive levels of air pollution, which built up to a really severe asthma attack. And you know what's the most tragic part to Ella's story? Ella was only nine years old and Today, research has revealed that more than 2 million Londoners are living in areas which exceed legal limits. And I'm sure that this is an issue not only Brits are struggling with alone. And I don't know if it came to a coincidence or not, but after having come across this story, I came across a Facebook post which was made by a really old friend I had met years ago. She is one of the most sweetest and most knowledgeable people that I know, so I'm really excited for you guys to meet her today. You know those super cool friends you have where even though you might not have spoken to them for ages, but when you do reconnect again, it literally feels like it's been a minute and it's just all amazing vibes all around again. Yeah, I would love for you guys to meet her. Her name is Katie Scarlett English, who is a recent master's graduate at London's most renowned universities, UCL, where she took on a master's course called Environment, Politics and Society. So yeah, back to the Facebook post I had mentioned. It was a really cool post where she was expressing her sustainability values, her advocacy, and all her incredible master's thesis research on London's toxic air health crisis, which I didn't know about before, and I didn't even know that she was passionate about in this specific niche. So for me, it just felt like the stars were aligning. So I'm so happy that I'm able to reconnect with Katie again through the Anima Animus podcast to share this super insightful conversation with you all. So I really hope that you enjoy this as much as we did speaking about it and recording it. 
Hey Katie, welcome to the Anima Animus podcast. I'm so excited to have you on this week. Hi Chelsea, thank you for having me and I'm excited to discuss what we have on the show today. It's so weird. Do you, do you want to tell our listeners like the background story of how we met and like how we came to be now? <laughs> yes, of course. Um, so Chelsea and I met on a UCL summer school a couple of years back and we just clicked. It's <laughs> uh, so long ago. So long ago. Um, but honestly, it's been such an amazing friendship and we've learned a lot from each other. And even though we haven't seen each other in a long time, Every time I speak to Chelsea, it feels like no time has passed at all. <laughs> it's so crazy, like, how fast has, like, time flew. Because we met, what, did you, like, what year was it? Let me think. Oh, I feel like, I want to say year 10, but I feel like that might be too old. I don't know. No, you're right. I think it was year 10. Yeah. Was it? Yeah, year 10. Yeah, it was yeah it was one of those things at uk schools when they're like okay let's prep you for like pre-uni life so they'll make (laughs) us go to like these summer schools and we just ended up in what ucl doing what was it they called it like the arts but it was like english law literature yeah arts and humanities type of vibe yeah english literature geography um a little bit of history thrown in there as well I remember one time they made us sit in a lecture and I think it was on people living on Mars. And I don't know why they made us sit in there, but... Really? I can't remember. Yeah. I can't remember. It's too long ago. Okay. That's... You've got a good memory to remember <laughs> that. Thanks. I just remembered... I know this is going to be sounding so dumb of me and this is why I didn't go to UCL in the end. Stop. But when they... <laughs> When they told me that, oh, you should you should apply for the UCL summer school in the arts. Like, I literally thought, like, art and design. Yeah. So I I basically mistakenly went to the summer school. But hey, I learned a lot. I met you, so <laughs> exactly. it's all glitchy out here. <laughs> it had a silver lining. Yeah. No, it was good, though. Um, first uni taster. Yeah, it was really interesting. Yeah. And now you actually went to UCL. So how was that? It's it's been a whirlwind, honestly, given the current climate. Um, it's been a mixture of obviously um, on-site lectures and then transitioning to online learning. But it was incredible. I'll say that. And I learned so much during my postgraduate degree, um, so much knowledge to share. And I also met some really amazing people um, who I think we'll be friends for life like you are um, yeah. yeah it was it was an interesting incredible experience and I wouldn't change it because it's got me to where I am today yeah oh I'm so glad I'm literally so happy for you thank I you love it. I love it that's what that is and this is when we reconnected again because I saw your post on Facebook and you were um you posted your certificate for your postgrad. And then when I read like the specialism, I was like, no way, what? Sustainability, the environment? Like, yo, (laughs) you're gonna have to come on the podcast. So yeah, here we are. Here we are. So as a tradition to every episode, we always play a little game and it's called AA Assumptions. So that's when I say three statements and you can reply if you think it's true or false and why. So you ready? Yeah. 
Cool. So since you just came out of uni and you're all in that student-y vibe, there are like some major <laughs> assumptions that normally come with uni life. So I just put the first one out for any of our young listeners as well. Um, it, it, it's not even the same now with COVID, but anyway, <laughs> the assumptions and the myths and stuff are there. So the first one is Freshers Week friends are friends for life. God, that was a tongue twister. <laughs> oh, that's a very good question to start off with. Um, I would say yes and no, because it's all dependent on the experience of the individual. With me in Freshers Week, I've made so many friends that I'm still in contact with to this day, regardless of whether they live in the UK or not, whether they're international. Um, but then again, I do know people who unfortunately didn't have the same experience as I did. But what I would advise people going into Freshers Week is just to put yourself out there and be yourself. Don't try and be anybody else because by being yourself, you'll attract like-minded people. And yeah, you're just more likely to enjoy the experience overall. Yeah, good. Good words of advice. <laughs> <laughs> like an advice guru. <laughs> so then the second statement is first year doesn't count. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, as I said before, it's all dependent on the experience, really, which is probably not what I should be saying as a postgraduate student. Uh, <laughs> but I would say it does count in the sense that it counts towards your personal development. So even if the actual degree course may not consider the, the marks at the end of the year um, as a contributor to your overall degree grade, I think it's definitely like will contribute to your personal development in the sense that it will give you techniques to take on to um, like further years of study um, also, you know, like public speaking, writing essays, uh, preparing for exams, how to break down information and take it in so that you understand it. There's so many things I think that are incredibly important to, to start learning in first year because they really will come in handy for the years ahead. Um, mm. For me personally, I'm a slow burner, so <laughs> it does take me a while to to get somewhere but we get there in the end and we do we do quite well I hope um <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah most important thing is not to be too hard on yourself and just to focus on your personal development yeah definitely I think especially because we've only got a set amount of years at uni oh, might yeah. as well, even if it doesn't count like for sure on paper there's so many other things that like it does count towards as exactly. you said yeah and I find like for me like the first year even though if mm. it didn't count for me you know how they're always like oh it's independent work and you should find your own like style and your own exactly, ways of working yeah. and stuff but you're also marking me so I don't really know like what you're <laughs> looking for yeah so it's like I know I'm gonna be independent but like what are you looking for and that was literally my whole year like my first year was like figuring out 
what they actually want and they don't even give examples that was the same for me actually (laughs) it it was um yeah because I was I was constantly in this state of panic in the sense that I didn't know what the lecturers wanted from me you know it's a big jump to go from A levels to university like the the study techniques and like writing styles and stuff are completely different to what you Mm. experience at A level but it's a challenge and you know we love a challenge um yeah (laughs) but by the end of it when I reflect on first year I wish that I hadn't panicked myself so much but at the same time just you know focused on finding like my own learning styles earlier on because as the years went on obviously I found my perfect learning style but I was too busy taking in like all these different like factors that didn't even matter in the grand scheme of things like what factors like um like I don't know I'd say this is quite cheesy um I would or like typical go for it (laughs) you can cut this out (laughs) if you want (laughs) Um, I would worry like way too much about what other people thought because obviously you know moving from college yeah college or school into um like a uni environment obviously you know like you're a small fish in a big pond but you're also worrying about like what everyone else is thinking what stage everyone else is at like am I like the stupid one here is everyone else like way ahead of me or am I getting (laughs) in you know those kinds of things but you really like shouldn't worry about that because at the end of the day everyone's in the same boat everyone's probably thinking like relatively like the same things yeah but yeah, that's what I mean. Exactly. Yeah, no, don't worry. I've heard Pete like weird things like people don't know how to like use, I don't know, the microwave or something stupid. Oh like my God. That. I know people so... burnt pasta. Oh my that's God. That's what I mean in terms of first years, like a term, like time for personal development because people burnt <laughs> pasta. Oh no, no. I know someone who burnt rice. I was like, how can you burn rice? Oh, that's so funny. I know, it's painful. Oh, that's so jokes. Like, I'm a Gordon Ramsay, but I know I wouldn't burn pasta. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? No, that's so funny. <laughs> Great. Well, yeah, so all our youngers who want to join uni, it's it's all good. It's, it's It'll be fun learning. <laughs> it's a really good learning environment, a really good chance to, you know, advance your skills, find your people, find your passions definitely recommend it if it's something that you are considering pursuing amazing so then our third and final one of the game it's it's not even uni anymore but like now it's leading on to the topics that you are literally the queen of so (laughs) most londoners are aware of the importance of air quality again that's a really good question i would say that assumption is both true and false. Um, I would say true because I think people are becoming more aware of the importance of air quality. Although I'd also say false because I also believe that so many Londoners are actually unaware of the importance of air quality because its effects, the effects of poor air quality aren't publicized enough. Thinking off the top of my head, I remember in 2019, I think it was, the Mayor of London published a a ton of new data um, on air quality and some of it showed um, that over 2 million Londoners, and that includes 
over 400,000 children were living in areas that exceeded legal limits for air pollution in the UK. Um, Crazy. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I think that statistic emphasises um, like my concern that not enough Londoners know about the importance of air quality or that they're unaware, but it's not their fault. So yeah, and that opens up to the main topic of our discussion, really. Um, just before we like dive deeper into mm-hmm. those, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself, background, and how you started getting interested in the world of sustainability? Yeah, sure. So my background, so when I went to university initially for my undergraduate degree, I did geography. Uh, and that became human geography and that was a three-year course so I started that in 2016 and I graduated in July of 2019 coming up to the end of my geography degree so let's start from the beginning of third year actually um, I started to dive deeper in particular topics of my interest at that time And I started to discover more about sustainability on an academic level. So when it was coming up to finishing that degree, I thought, no, I want to pursue this further. I don't think I'm done learning about this yet on an academic level. So I had a look at some um, postgraduate courses in um, in my area, in my city. um, And I found a postgraduate course at UCL and that is titled uh, MSc in Environment, Politics and Society. So it covers a lot of areas uh, with regards to sustainability and there was a few um, that I really sunk my teeth into. So off the top of my head one of those particular modules was basically it was environmental and social risk management in natural resource projects and that touched on the importance of uh, environmental impact assessments, environmental and social assessments, um, environmental and social governments, you know, remaining compliant in projects and ensuring that those projects were completely sustainable and they weren't harming the surrounding communities, that kind of thing. Um, Anyway, tying that into where I am now. So when we were looking at things to do for our, um, for our postgraduate dissertations, uh, one of the, the lectures that we had just had had been on uh, environmental justice and air quality. So I had been looking at particular resources on my computer and I came across the story of uh, Ella Kisi Deborah that story really, really connected with me on a personal level. And I really do feel for Ella's family. I ended up looking at uh, incinerators in London. And then I decided that that's what I wanted to do my dissertation on. I wanted to do it on um, air pollution and also link that to incineration, how incineration causes air pollution, because that's one of the highest contributors. And then I thought, well, where do I start with that? So when I was looking at local incinerators, 
I realised, and this came as a shock to me and also as a shock to Chelsea, uh, actually, that there's one not too far from where we both grew up. And that's what I focused my dissertation on. And I looked at the local responses to this particular incinerator um, and I uncovered so many things and it's made me realise that I want to, you know, pursue this concept of sustainability even further. Um, that's not to say that I'll be doing a PhD or anything like that, um, although I completely respect anybody that's chosen to do a PhD. You, you lot are the kings and queens of academia. Um, we're pursuing that that long I'm incredibly proud of you um, but yeah I would love to dive into a career in the sustainability sector and that's how I got to where I am today amazing yeah so many points that I definitely agree with you on firstly with Ella's story I only knew about or read about this story so recently like a month or so ago which yeah. is crazy because then when I read more into it it's actually like years ago that this exactly. happened so it's yeah and then the fact that she was only nine and she Horrible. she was the first person in the UK to have the reason of cause of death as air pollution which is insane yeah yeah and then second of all with um the incinerator being so close to our home like when I when I first opened your thesis and then I saw the location because at first I thought it was the place in the states and then when oh, I was like oh no okay. this is located in the UK and I was like no <laughs> I can see the confusion yeah. though it's really easy to um to mistake yeah. that yeah so it was just the fact that we're so close to home and it, yeah yeah and as in a sense on a personal level with having family members with really bad asthma like it could have happened to any any of them and it's exactly. just like you know yeah so to hear a story on that sort of level is like whoa yeah it really does touch you on a personal level especially considering it was someone so young um mm. and I really I do pray that it doesn't happen to any other child um but unfortunately there's no guarantee but I really hope that you know, Ella's family do receive justice for all the pain they went through and also the pain Ella went through. And even though the main contributor, um, the, the cause of death, the air pollution was from the, the South Circular incineration is such a big contributor to London's like toxic air health crisis that we're experiencing at the moment. And it's quite scary because it's invisible. We can't see it. It's something we're breathing in and we don't even realise it because we just go around, you know, on our day-to-day -day tasks. And it's not something that you'd normally consider being wary of, it, especially in the pandemic. Like you're probably more concerned yeah. about, you know, making those essential trips, making sure that you don't contract uh, COVID-19. Um, yeah, but this is also something as well that, is really detrimental to people's health. Yeah, it's kind of like a slow COVID. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you're I still do. breathing in. It's like a hidden, yeah, which is ah crazy. Um, but yeah, to introduce the thesis that you've worked on, so you entitled it "London's Toxic Air Health Crisis: A Study of Local Resilience." Uh, <laughs> a study of local resistance to the environmental, social and health injustices. So with a focus on 
like overproduction of waste causing this national waste emergency let's let's make like Sadiq Khan and Boris like listen to us so <laughs> um yeah tell us a bit more about the problem like the issue what kind of waste gets burnt there why why are we still burning so much waste if we know it's harmful for our environment okay um so where to begin um i have a lot of things going around in my head at the moment but um so to start off um as you said like the overproduction of waste that we're currently facing it's not only causing uh, a waste emergency for us in the city um an air crisis in the city it's a it's a national thing it's causing a national waste emergency and the thing is is that the the waste that is being produced is a combination of recyclable and non-recyclable waste it's connected directly to overconsumption um a lack of public knowledge about waste management and disposal practices uh, a plethora of things really um to dive in a little bit deeper one of the the ways that this waste is being burnt is incineration um, and there are only three incinerators that are fully operational in London but this statistic is in- incredible but these three incinerators only contribute well they contribute to 54 percent of total UK incineration which I found insane crazy um, that's crazy and managed 2154,000 tons of London's waste in the past year that's what DEFRA claimed in 2019 and something else to consider as well which is what makes it so pressing for me is that every ton of waste burnt uh, also means that a ton of carbon dioxide is released into the earth's atmosphere so this one incinerator the Edmonton incinerator what the uh the north london waste authority uh the the local governing waste body is planning to do is redevelop this incinerator and call it a energy recovery facility so this particular project i know (laughs) what is like it's like the greenwashing of fashion (laughs) exactly Um, um this particular project plans to burn 700,000 tons of waste a year so by the previous um mention about one ton of waste burnt would equal one ton of carbon dioxide being released to the earth's atmosphere 700,000 tons of waste is being burnt so 700,000 tons of carbon dioxide is being released into the earth's atmosphere all because of an overcapacity that uh the, the city and local authorities can't manage oh gosh yeah so it's like our byproduct waste and it's like what kind of waste gets done yeah so um the waste that gets burned at this specific incinerator is local authority collected waste so that refers to the waste produced Uh, from households local businesses green spaces you know like the bins that you have in your parks and fields mm. um and the waste itself unfortunately isn't filtered um what so yeah so the waste isn't filtered so that means that 
the non-recycler and the recycler so non-recyclable materials and the recyclable materials are burnt together if one wait wait. so you know the recycled bins where we filter it ourselves get also burnt in the same area yeah my god so i don't think i've explained that properly so one of my participants actually gained this knowledge from a previous employee of the the North London Waste Authority. I will not disclose their name or anything like that or the name of the employee. Um, But they were informed that basically the the NLWA will bring in, say, seven truckloads of waste. So recycler, non-recycler, recycler, non-recycler. This is from my understanding. And if one piece of the the recycler truckload is contaminated, all of it gets burnt. Oh my god! So yeah, if one piece what? of yeah, so one piece of non-recyclable waste is in the recycler, that doesn't just get picked out; it all gets burnt. Bruh, that is so lazy. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to say it, um, and I'm not spreading misinformation by any means. I had to cross-check my sources for mentioning that, but yeah, that is the truth, um, and it really angers me uh, because there is so much effort. Uh, from the public to ensure you know that yeah. you recycle there's so much pressure put on the public to recycle on local residents you know reduce reuse recycle and if one piece of non-recyclable waste gets put in a truck of recyclable waste they go no we're just gonna burn it oh the effort like i don't know it doesn't even make any sense to me like imagine finding that one piece like at the bottom of the truck though like, you would have gone through all that effort anyway to filter out the stuff. Like, why not just... Exactly. <laughs> ah, it feels like the biggest lie of my life now. It's mind-blowing. <laughs> it took me a while to wrap my head around it. And as I said, I had to cross-check, you know, sources and um, yeah. where the specific participant, like, who they had spoken to and whatnot. But, yep, that is a true fact. And <sighs> it makes Shame. my blood boil. yeah it's such a shame it's such a shame so a lot of recyclable waste is being burned unnecessarily wow well i don't yeah i'm still kind of speechless (laughs) okay um so my life is a lie uh (laughs) so yeah let's also then think about all the other health problems that are associated with burning waste so we've mentioned asthma. So um, uh, it can lead to premature deaths. As you said, it can lead to asthma attacks. It can also lead to pulmonary dysfunction and inflammation. And there was an interesting study that I read uh, when I was writing my dissertation. Um, for anyone that was interested in to know who it was by, it was by Travaglio et al, uh, produced in 2020. And they found that air pollution produced by things such as incineration is linked to the spread of COVID-19. No so, surprise. Yeah. <laughs> so, so all those things, uh, those are the health implications of burning waste. It disproportionately affects particular communities. Um, I'm sure we'll discuss that in a little bit. Um, but those are the main issues of it. And also there's currently no environmental impact assessments or environmental and social assessments conducted by the North London Waste Authority for the North London um, Heat and Power Project. So the level of risk, the level of health risk 
environmental risk, all those kinds of things is still unknown, which is really scary because we don't know about the, the long-term effects, let alone the short-term effect that this will have on the local community. Yeah, definitely. I just feel like, you know how London is always so gloomy? Yeah. <laughs> what if the colour is literally just burnt plastic 24-7? <laughs> All those grey skies. There's a reason. Yeah. (laughs) It was the reason was there all along. It's just just all this burnt waste that we're inhaling. Yeah. Oh, crazy. So yeah, it's it's so obvious to anyone really. Like burning this much amount of waste is so it has so many negative connotations. But surely there is a counter argument as to why they still exist. So yeah, who are these horrible people and what are they <laughs> arguing for, for these incinerators? Okay, um, so one way that the North London Waste Authority is trying to justify the North London Heat and Power Project is the argument is that they're transforming non-recyclable waste into low carbon heat and power supply for over 127,000 local homes and businesses so that's one element of the argument they also argue that the uh the project will provide new jobs for uh, local residents and communities they also argue as well that they have clean emissions technologies right present in this new incinerator that will filter out toxic particulates that have an impact on human health so pm1 and PM 0.1 but these specific toxic particulates cannot actually be filtered out using clean emissions technology so it's a blatant lie it's a blatant disregard for the health of local residents local communities Um, another argument they have is that incineration is a cost-effective process Um, it's an easy short-term solution to the waste problem it's a sustainable alternative to landfill um, and that it's marked to have a capacity to burn up to six thousand tons of waste per year so it's seen as a quick and easy way to combat the waste problem but we really need to to look at other options for waste management and disposal because of the impacts that incineration has on human health and on the surrounding environment that is present in it's it sounds so shallow you know like okay we'll provide <laughs> jobs but like the people are not even filtering the recyclable and not recyclable trucks it's shocking <laughs> it, it's very hypocritical um yeah it sounds very ironic too very ironic like, the filters that can't filter out the toxic particles yeah so they say that it can filter out toxic particles it can't filter out pm1 and pm 0.1 which are the most dangerous and the world health organization recognizes that so it's public knowledge that these specific toxic particulates are extremely dangerous to human health and local um local environmental activists that i spoke to have raised this point in uh, letters addressed to government uh you know letters addressed to the the local waste authority local council and it's been ignored wow there's so much there's something that I did learn a lot from Anna Cheshire's from sustainability explored 
episode yeah i think like two two episodes before this one she stressed so much about the importance of community and for like a local community i wasn't even like aware about how much power and how much the community voice can play a part in these decisions um absolutely only it's it's undermined i think i think it is as well I think the yeah. voices of local residents are so important, especially when addressing topics like this that will affect the future of these communities and the future of the planet. So yeah, I completely agree with you. I completely agree with Anna. And I think it's something that you know local governing bodies need to focus on more. They need to stop listening to the, the corporate voices and actually you know look at the local level and look at how this is actually affecting people and what their concerns are yeah definitely and yeah you mentioned there are other solutions which i'm sure like you've explored so many um throughout your thesis so yeah do you want to like dive into kind of like what the questions you proposed in your research paper were what your research and your findings showed yeah of course um so i had three main research questions in my postgraduate dissertation um this was a qualitative uh research paper so it involved doing interviews um to show how environmentalism can support social mobility and encourage people to become activists um but the first um research question that I had was what I was wondering to myself what incentivizes members of the community to join local activist groups and become a part of the wider environmental activist network what connects them to it and I found so many so many answers to this so I'll try and summarize it as best as I can um but the the main thing I found was um there were a lot of emotional connections a lot of emotive responses it was collective so a lot of people were were angry and and fearful of this incinerator and they were upset towards local authorities for their lack of compliance um with you know national legislation global legislation um to do with air quality interviewees specifically were angry at the injustice of the situation they had gone through so many different means to to raise awareness about the incinerator to try and make the local councils that they were um, in contact with change their mind about supporting this development something that would affect thousands of people that live in this region but they just weren't getting anywhere with um these bodies so they were very upset very angry very frustrated which i can completely understand and empathize with because the lengths they were going to were absolutely incredible and i'm so proud of each and every one of them that i spoke to and just them as a collective for going and taking those lengths because it's it's a very it's a very um tiresome job like it requires a lot of energy um a lot of tenacity and then just to have you know local authorities turn around and say well yeah but the 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 local waste authority is saying that it's okay so it must be okay is a bit it's like a kick in the teeth basically uh people were concerned for their own health and that of neighboring families 
um, a lot of people had prior engagements and like passions for environmentalism. So they'd previously been environmental activists in groups like Extinction Rebellion. Um, and also uh, another main one was the fact that people were incentivized to participate because the increase in the scope for waste collections, as I mentioned earlier, so the 700,000 tonnes of waste burnt per annum was a main concern because um, it would cause major environmental and health impacts and biogenic carbon is excluded from the statistics. So even though it says um, that for every one tonne of waste burnt, a tonne of CO2 is released into the Earth's atmosphere, biogenic carbon isn't included in that, so it could be more. And overall, they just wished to stop the spread of misinformation by local authorities to local residents and there was a lot of clashes with that for many reasons and they've actually gone to the national level now they've gone to government to um, change legislation to try and alter the course of events because it's just gotten to that point where even though they have so much information so much science so many people opposing this development that the local uh, authorities are still saying no they, they think that by going and showing this um, to national government that something could possibly change um, and stop the incinerator from um, going ahead, the redevelopment, but we, we shall see. Um, it's looking good mm. at the moment, I will say that. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Another research question that I explored was, what I wanted to know was, what strategies are used by these local activist groups to create spaces of engagement to challenge the North London Heat and Power Project? Um, and again, there were, there were tons of responses, so I'll try and condense this as best I can. Um, but one of the main ones that they used to connect the unconnected was uh, online forums. So a lot of social media uh, engagement was used to uh, raise awareness in alternative spaces. So this was things like WhatsApp groups, Facebook pages, Twitter accounts, uh, public invitations to Zoom meetings. Um, and that was especially important when the pandemic started to keep this project going, to keep this campaign going, I should say. Um, mm. Because obviously with social distancing, um, and the risk of catching coronavirus, it was incredibly important for everybody to stay at home. But it was great that people had access to the technology to be able to keep this campaign going. Um, another thing that they did was uh, snowballing. So that's a, a common technique used in academia, but what it basically references to going through um, like a person's contacts and then going through their contacts and so on and so forth. So it was a lot of friends of friends uh, engagement. Some of the activists I spoke to would had young children and they would liaise with parents at local schools uh, when they were picking up their kids, um, sharing information about the incinerator, handing out leaflets, that kind of thing. This was prior to the pandemic. I just need to put that in there. <laughs> um, yeah. Another thing they did prior to the pandemic was outreach. So they had some stalls at local supermarkets. They had a, one particular activist, sorry, that I spoke to, had a stall at the same time that the North London Waste Authority 
had a stall in the same supermarket and it was a, a very colorful interaction <laughs> i would say um, and it was a perfect time for the activists to sort of discredit the the statements and the misinformation that the uh the north london waste authority reps were spreading good plan uh, yeah very good plan um and the most important thing i found from this particular question is that it's incredibly important that we connect the unconnected so i found that there was a lack of representation of um, ethnic minority communities um, but the activists were willing to listen to the concerns of these people and understand their experiences on a deeper level um, i thought perhaps it's the public perception of environmental issues that presents a barrier for these communities to join local environmental groups. And I found that it's important that we must acknowledge the relationship between racial embodiment and climate justice because everybody sees things from different perspectives. It's not all one unified view. And the activists were, were really trying to connect with ethnic minority residents and um, people of color but unfortunately it wasn't, they didn't get a high response rate, but that could be for a number of reasons. And also they found that they lacked input from young and ethnic minority residents. So one of the groups that I spoke to uh, was determined to improve community representation and is in the process of connecting with local ethnic minority groups to discuss how they view local environmental issues. And there were also generational differences. So this point is particularly interesting as well. So the incinerator is massive, the current one, and it's been around since 1969. And when certain activists were performing outreach in their local communities, uh, one of them went around houses in Chingford. One elderly resident that she spoke to considered it to be the Eiffel Tower of Chingford. Oh my god. <laughs> Which I found quite funny. Um, but it just goes to show it plays on if something's you know, if something's there in an area for a for a long time, it becomes part of the scenery. So people don't question it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a landmark for her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bless her though. Um but I thought that was such a good like way to phrase it. <laughs> um ironically. Yeah. Um and the final research question that I explored was how are public and private actors supporting the incinerator redevelopment and responding to concerns of the local community? So as I mentioned previously, there was a blatant disregard by local authorities for the concerns of the local community. There was a live annual general meeting hosted by the head of the North London Waste Authority. This is available on YouTube. Um, I'm happy to give Chelsea a link to it so she can put it yeah, on definitely. the um, description. Yeah, um, if anyone wants to watch it, I would advise that you watch it because the way that the, the chairman of this authority deals with local councillors who are speaking on behalf of concerns of the local community as a collective is horrible. It's abhorrent. Um, I remember there was one particular councillor, I think this was for uh, Tottenham, and she, I won't disclose her party, but she was expressing the concerns of how this will affect kids. Um, her son had participated in a King's College study 
um, on air pollution and lungs. And she said to the, the chairman, I don't know if you've had to see uh, a young child's lungs after they've been exposed to air pollution, but I had to see my son's and it wasn't pleasant. That's what she said, um, not in those exact words. And I thought that was heartbreaking for me. And he turns around to her and says her name and says, well, this is a reason why you'll never be in power. And what? I was raging. Yeah, I thought that is a disgusting and unprofessional way to talk to somebody who's not only expressing their concerns, but the concerns of the local community for how this will affect people's health people's daily lives yeah. uh it was just shocking and to build on that point actually so when i first started out doing my research i did want to see how they were um engaging with the community prior to uh, a lot of activist groups taking wind and you know producing campaigns to stop the incinerator they supposedly had public consultations uh with a small percentage of uh, local community when I went to access these links, they were broken to the, to the files, oh. sorry, that had all the uh, public consultation in. So I assume that these have been removed by the North London Waste Authority after the activist campaigns had gained so much traction. So to me, that shows that there's a silencing of local voices. And it's been... Good cheap. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's such a cheeky thing for them to do. Um, I think, it, again, it's because these campaigns were gaining so much traction, so much publicity, and they were spreading so much awareness to the local community that people were waking up and realising, oh, my God, this does affect me. This does affect my children. This does affect, you know, the community. Um, but that's like a synopsis of, of what I found. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's so intense. There's a lot, yeah, a lot of points there that, now like my mind is full of things i mean like firstly mm -hmm. let's touch upon like that intersection between um the barriers of what people view the different yeah. perceptions as you said like mm -hmm. could you give us like some kind of examples of what people have perceived the problem of were and like what made them stop from participating in like uh, activism and oh what stopped them from participating in these campaigns yeah so you know how you mentioned the different perceptions that yes. people might have yeah oh, like what were they yes i understand um the although the campaigns try to be as inclusive as they possibly could be they were not technically representative of the entire community so when I first started out my research, I looked at the demographics and I noticed that in the two wards, so of Upper Edmonton and of Edmonton, the um, Black, Indigenous, People of Colour community, the percentage of those particular residents is over 50%. So for Upper Edmonton, I believe it was 54%. And then for uh, Lower Edmonton or Edmonton, it was... 56 i'd say so it's a very high proportion of people from that group and that community okay um and unfortunately the the environmental campaigns did not represent that 
So what I thought was from talking to people who had decided to become disengaged, who, who were part of this um, community, what I decided to take when I was doing my research is that they feel their, their views aren't understood. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, which, which I can understand from the way that they phrased it to me. They felt that their views and their experiences of environmentalism, of um, environmental injustices weren't the same as their uh, counterparts. Uh, one example I can pull off the top of my head is that, so Extinction Rebellion, a very famous environmental group with lots of activity on the local scale. That's not to say that the local group isn't, isn't inclusive. Of course they are, they try their best to be, but historically Extinction Rebellion is known for practicing techniques that can be exclusive so or disregard the the treatment of particular people so one thing they will do um and you must have seen this on media in the media um or you may have seen it in person because how big these protests are they use people as arrestables to gain more media traction and to yeah so oh, yeah yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I hope that makes sense. If it's not, tell me. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they will uh, go out in groups and say to people, right, you know, you're going to try and get arrested. So, you know, again, more police come here. There's more media traction. It gets featured on the news more. We raise more awareness about how important it is to, um, like, you know, address climate change and mitigate the the risks that we currently face. However, that excludes a large part of the population in Britain, in London, because historically um, some communities unfortunately have been mistreated by the police. So people are concerned for their well-being, people are concerned that they will be targeted, people are concerned for the futures of their children if they do get involved in these kinds of things. So that was one of the many reasons that I was informed of and I'm a white woman so I do have a level of privilege that other people don't so I will never experience that but I can try my best to understand it to, to see where they're coming from to, to understand their lived experience and that really upset me the fact that they were scared to get involved in like local environmentalism because of these sorts of things that we see in the media mm. mm-hmm okay yeah definitely understand now where where their challenges are yeah um it's a shame really because then that prevents them from yeah getting involved in things that they would want to do mm -hmm. um, um yeah so yeah oh sorry i was also going no, to go add, for it. um one thing i found really interesting and i'm sure you will too is the case of the Cambridge incinerator. So I also came across that whilst talking with an interviewee. So as I've said, I've also already described the, um, the, the demographic of Edmonton, Upper Edmonton. Um, in the case of an incinerator in Cambridge, plans were rejected for an incinerator in a middle-class neighborhood because of environmental concerns. So a question that was raised to me is why has an incinerator in Cambridge been rejected for environmental concerns, but not in Edmonton, an area with a much higher percentage of working class 
and ethnic minority residents who share the same concerns. Um, yeah. And building on that point, so when I was looking into you know, local equality and diversity reports produced by councils, I remember one of them stated that they were focusing on reducing health inequalities and improving well-being. But that's far from the truth, because if, why is it that if it's in, you know, a high income, you know, middle class area with a different demographic, it gets rejected for environmental concerns, but then local councils aren't willing to address the concerns of the residents in Edmonton. So they're not addressing their health, like their concerns for health inequalities or improving well-being. They're, They're putting them at risk on purpose to make money. And it angers me each and every day. Yeah, it's so it's so many layers. It goes down to so many layers. Um, exactly. Yeah, and that was like the eye-opening thing for this thesis when I read into it. The more you you read and find out about just this one thing, it's first it's like health and well-being, then it's the environment. Now it's um, the intersections of race and background. Yeah. into so many deep deep layers yeah so then what would you say to the the other disengaged population where they think you know I'm gonna sit back and I don't I don't have to do something because there's always going to be other other people sorting out the climate crisis problem um and the air emergency problem like what would you how would you recommend you know, someone to rethink that notion? That's a really interesting question. I'm really glad that you've asked me that. Um, (laughs) There's a lot to think about, um, but I'll try and express myself as best I can. Um, To those people, you know, who are remaining disengaged, who don't choose to not even just participate in local environmentalism, but take time to understand how their actions on a daily basis can not only affect themselves but others and the planet um i would stress the importance of public consultation to them um, and how that shapes future decisions on local waste management and disposal because local communities truly do and can play a big part in shaping environmental government governance sorry um it's so important that we listen to everyone's perspectives and um concerns on and about a situation and by remaining disengaged you know you're not you're not contributing to that wider that wider discussion Um, and i can understand that some people do find it scary and they do fear sorry they do fear participating in these types of things and I deeply empathize with them but there are ways that you can submit your concerns anonymously Um, and I think it's absolutely crucial for activists for people that do have that platform and that power and that privilege to listen to the concerns of underrepresented communities to identify the factors that encourage pro-environmental behaviors because that's what we really need to look at we need to look at what causes people to become passionate about something what what is considered a pro-environmental behavior do we know all of the all of the pro-environmental behaviors out there or is it that we're just not opening our minds enough to understand or is it that we're not getting enough input 
there's a lot of things to consider but just coming back to the question as i know i'm going off a bit um what i would say is um please please share your voice because one decision like this can affect millions when it doesn't need to be that way yeah yeah let's wrap it up on on a more positive note and a, a note of hope because i know yeah like, you know, like this is so it's a really serious issue and it does get to us in many ways as well but on that note of hope mm-hmm. um yeah you've also just given us like some golden words that you can just express your voice um your opinion and kind of like what we've touched upon about like the importance of that public um voice and that yeah. power to just speak and even if we don't like we don't have to be like part of extension rebellion and like doing all these wild things out there you know like there's so many other ways that we can um yeah also put in our input which 100 um yeah just to um expand on that there yeah there are so many other ways other than extinction rebellion that you can get involved in this type of local environmentalism there are so many local environmental groups out there that are welcoming to two people that are new to environmentalism new to sharing their concerns and there are other groups that are more social that will allow you to come onto zoom meetings and just discuss one aspect of environmentalism in your local area i've participated in them i'll share those links with chelsea as well in case anyone's yeah. interested um because they are really lovely people like all the people in these groups all the interviewees just amazing yeah i would say that there's so many ways to get involved um, please don't be deterred from it. <laughs> we don't yeah. all want to get arrested. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's a good, I don't know, like a learning thing that we could just do during like lockdown now. Exactly. It's like, why not, you know, like why not um, find out more yeah. Yeah, about the things that are going on on a local scale. So yeah, and let's just leave off with some resource recommendations or like Mm -hmm. tips or any other words of advice that you would want to just leave to our listeners oh yeah of course um so the internet is such an amazing and powerful tool (laughs) and we we are very lucky to to be able to experience that um so there are loads of resources that you can access online and i'll send the links to chelsea as well um a really cool website to look at if you're if you don't really want to look at statistics specifically, but more of a visualization, a visual representation of how air pollution affects your local area is a website called Plume Plotter. And that is a really cool website because you can select a specific area, a specific date and location, and it will show you how the local incinerator in that area, how the air pollution spreads on a daily basis. It's constantly being monitored over what parts of an area oh, wow. it's spreading over it's so cool and one uh, screenshot i actually got from plume plus i included in my thesis and it was showing how um the edmonton incinerator how the smoke is blowing over i think it's about five or six local primary schools which is really terrifying <sighs> yeah um i'd say it's probably reduced now or has changed its course because of the pandemic and they're probably not burning as much i'm not too sure but um yeah that the specific time I took that screenshot it was shocking and it's another reason as to why we need to 
you know, really focus on the importance of air quality and raise our voices and share our concerns because it is affecting young children, it's affecting local communities, it's affecting underrepresented communities, um, affecting everybody. Another cool website is UK Win. So that's the UK Without Incineration Network. And that's a really cool website if you're more interested in the statistics style of things. There's so many tables and it's really up-to-date data that show why incineration shouldn't be happening, what is emitted when waste is burned, all that good stuff. You know, how much waste is burned a year per incinerator. Loads of different information on that website. So I would highly recommend that. Um, Path. Yeah. <laughs> um, so those are some of the main sources. Also local environmental groups will happily share resources with you you don't need to join them but they're just more than happy to raise awareness um mm. about these topics just so you know the public are informed residents are informed about what is going on and then yeah if you're an academic like me a really cool uh, article to read is by Travaglio et al I mentioned that earlier in this discussion and that's just on how air pollution is linked to the spread of COVID-19, not only to that, but produces a trifecta of health risks, which we briefly touched upon um, in this discussion. Amazing. Ooh. Thank you for so much of these golden nuggets. Um, okay. I'll definitely include it to the um, episode show notes, which can be found on our website. And just so before we close off, what's next for you? What's happening? What's gonna be cooking next with Katie? Oh, very good question. I feel like you're just asking amazing questions today, to be fair. Um, you're on fire, girl. Um, <laughs> Since you, so much knowledge just poured into this episode. Well, I'm happy to share more if anybody would like to know further information. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, what's in store for me? I'm currently looking at jobs in the sustainability sector. I've done this amazing like discussion with Chelsea, which I'm very grateful for. Thank you for having me on here today. I really no, appreciate it. No, thank <laughs> you for like showing me this. And I listen to loads of Chelsea's podcasts and they're bloody amazing. They're amazing. Um, oh. So I would definitely recommend giving them a listen if you haven't already, because you're going to learn today, right? So um, <laughs> blushing. <laughs> so I'm, yeah, just looking at sustainability focused careers I'm interested in becoming a sustainability consultant or an ESG analyst so just looking things around that area yeah those are my plans so far amazing yeah you'll definitely find something I have no worries for you thank you (laughs) I appreciate that awesome and where can our (laughs) listeners find you if they want to ask you some questions oh of course so um I'll give you my email and that is katie scarlet english at gmail.com very wordy but um, if you are interested um in any like having any additional information or you have any questions about air pollution or just sustainability in general you know just pop me an email um yeah and i'll get back to you um I am planning on uh, making a Instagram that's sustainability focused, but that's still in the planning phase. So um, yeah, once I have an at and everything, I'll share it with Chelsea. Um, Yes. Yeah, no, I'm always open to um, answering questions or just having discussions about things. So yeah. Perfect. Oh, I'm so excited. 
ah, oh, buzzing for this new sustainability page. Thank you. Literally, it's just—it's like still in the planning phase, but I really want to do it because I just think it's another way to raise awareness, um, especially to our generation and people younger than us. And just get it out there. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Excited. Oh, amazing. Yeah, it's so exciting. Well, thank you so much again for joining me. It's been so, so insightful, so fun um, talking about these these issues in a, in a relaxed and like chilled way. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah Steph, like I appreciate these these talks so that it doesn't feel like a classroom, you know. Definitely, <laughs> like, yeah. I'm yeah. really glad we could just have like an open, chilled discussion, and you know, whenever whenever I talk to you feels like you know the last time we saw each other was yesterday so (laughs) i'm always happy to have a chat so we may have stopped talking but that doesn't mean you have to join us and the rest of the aa fam on our website at animaanimus.co.uk to connect and continue the conversation within our forum spaces please do drop me what your thoughts were on this episode you can even submit any voice notes ideas stories that you'd like me to share on the show you can also find all the links we've mentioned in this episode in the show notes available on our website and i would be so so grateful if you could help me make this show become more discoverable for others by leaving a five-star review on your favorite episode and a social media handle i can contact you with because i would love to connect and thank you all personally i really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as i did thank you so much again for coming through and for listening i really appreciate you joining this journey with me in driving discussions and creating positive industry change once again i want to send you all a mad mad love and until next week This was the Anima Animas podcast with Chelsea now signing out.